Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, please stand with me as we read our passage this morning. In a Hebrew context, before we, anyone goes to the word, we make a recommitment to ourselves in the form of a prayer called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. We'll be in Nehemiah 8 today. Follow along with me in your Bibles. These are the very words of God. And all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, Beside him on his right stood a lot of people, and on the left others who I do not wish to read in public. (laughs) Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their face to the ground. The Levites, who also had names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were listening, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went down and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelter on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one of the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters to live in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. 
They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with their regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you watch a movie, I think it's uh, pretty easy to be able to recognize the memorable moments or the memorable scenes in a movie. A memorable scene is, the one, uh, is one that drives the story forward. It is one of those critical points that if you miss it, the rest of the movie doesn't make sense. At our house, oftentimes, if we're watching a movie or a show, one of us will need to go to the bathroom or get something to eat, and we'll get up, and the other person will ask, do you want me to pause it? And this is what, how you can tell whether this is a memorable or scene or not. If the person says yes, it's a memorable scene. You sort of recognize that I can't miss this point. If I miss this point, I'm not going to understand what's going on, and then you're going to have to pause it anyway and explain it to me, and it's not being very good. So just, yes, please pause it while I go. But there are other times we'll say, no, 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 just, just let it run, right? I'll be back. It won't be hard, and I can jump right back in. Because we kind of recognize, I think, uh, kind of instinctually when we're watching a movie, when we're hearing a story, um, that there are these memorable moments. There are these memorable scenes that really highlight and drive the story forward. And just like a movie, our life has memorable scenes. This weekend, our family got to actually experience one of these memorable scenes. We actually flew down to North Carolina this weekend for my brother-in-law's wedding. It was really wonderful. All of, her, all of Molly's family was there. I got to uh, officiate the wedding. It was just a really special time as we celebrated uh, her brother Taylor uh, and his wife Emily. But I had a moment at the reception. I was looking around and I was uh, watching people. You ever have just a moment where you just kind of take a step back from, a, from a, a big scene like that and be able just to kind of process? And I looked back and I saw people laughing and dancing, and eating, and reminiscing, and enjoying one another. There was a great, uh, one of those moments where there was just a lot of great fanfare in the air. We were all dressed to the nines, eating the best of foods. And I had a moment where I thought, this is what heaven's going to be like. This is what heaven's going to be like. We're going to be dressed to the nines, laughing, reminiscing, sharing stories, eating the best foods while we celebrate a commitment between a bride and the bridegroom. It was just one of those really cool moments, one of those memorable scenes in your life where you sit back and you go, I'm going to remember this. This is one of those thumb uh, uh, attack moments where you just, this drives our story as a family forward, this wedding. And all of us have experienced memorable scenes in our lives. Maybe it was a birthday or a move or an anniversary, a graduation, a birth, a first, a proposal, a wedding. And these are the moments that drive in life, that drive our story forward. And the Bible, too, has memorable stories and memorable scenes in the story. And that isn't to say that Scripture isn't God-breathed and all of it serves great purpose. But just like a movie or life, there are moments that drive it forward. Moments where you stop and go, something big is happening here in this narrative, and we need to pause and lean in and listen. And this passage this morning is one of those stories. 
If you were going to take different scriptures to help you tell the story of the Bible, you would include this passage. Because while it might not seem like it, we're actually reading a marriage story today. Or maybe more accurately, I should say, a remarriage story. And to help us understand why this is such a memorable scene, I think we need to go back and look at a few other memorable scenes that lead up to this story to give us the context to know why this is such an important one today. So if you're in Bibles, I'd actually encourage you to follow along. We're going to take just a little trip and a little journey as we see some of those memorable scenes in the Bible to help give us an appreciation for why this one is so significant. I invite you to Genesis chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, it's the very first uh, book of the Bible. So just head right to that very first book. Find chapter 12. Because this, this is the story of the start of God's redemption plan. And he chooses a man named Abraham. God has left, let the side effects of sin get to the point that humanity was about to build a tower. And this tower was to represent all that God could, all that man could have created. All that man can do in his own power and in his own strength. The people say in the passage before in Genesis 11 that this tower was to represent something that would make their name great. And God is able to hold back until this point. And then he says, no more. We have to do something about this. My, my rescue plan needs to start going into motion. And so Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abraham. And God tells Abraham that you are to go from this place, from these people, from this tower, and you are to go and start a new nation. And I will make you a great nation of people, a kingdom, so to speak. And then God begins to paint a picture for Abraham of the future they'll share together. Their relationship and the generations to follow would bless the whole world. And then we get a few chapters later to Genesis 15, and we hit the first memorable scene because God decides to put a ring on it. No? Okay, never mind. <laughs> he formally proposes to Abraham by telling him to get some animals. And if you were with us for our series on the long story short about a year ago, we actually mentioned it and, and spoke of this very passage. God actually uses the everyday common uh, rituals of the day to explain to Abraham what he was intending to do. And so he says, go get some animals. And he has Abraham uh, cut these animals too and put them on either side of a slope. And so this blood path was created in the middle. And Abraham knows exactly what this is because this is how you propose to people in the ancient, in the ancient Near East. There were two sides to this. First is that the, the groom, the groom-to-be would give a cup to his bride and he'd say, this cup I offer to you. In a sense saying, will you marry me? And if the woman took the cup and, and, and drank it, it meant yes, she agreed to it. But then there was this second ritual and this one involved the father of the bride. Not always the best and easiest one, but this one involved the groom putting on a white robe. And as, once he put on the white robe, he would walk between the pieces. He'd pass between the pieces. He'd walk through the blood path. And as he walked, the blood of the blood path would splash on that white robe. And the symbolism there was, if I hurt your daughter, if I abuse your daughter, if I mistreat your daughter, if I abandon your daughter, you and your sons 
can do to me what happened to these animals today. Now, I joked last time, I'm thankful that my father-in-law did not make me have to walk through a blood path or anything like that. Although now as a father of a daughter, and I'm sure you fathers out there who have daughters, this actually doesn't sound like a bad idea to me anymore. <laughs> I think this is something we could, we could bring back. This, uh, I, I'd like to see someone, a, a, a young man who I'm going to give my precious daughter away to. I'd like, I'd like to see him uh, do something like that. I think I'd enjoy something like that. But anyway... This was very common. This is what you did back then. And so in Genesis 15, he says, go get the animals. Let's make this official. And he puts a ring on it. What we discover is that God and Abraham, and by extension, Israel at large, God and Israel get engaged. That's your first fill-in today. God and Israel get engaged. This is a love story. They get engaged. Now, as the story goes on, the rest of Genesis, if you continue flipping in your Bibles through the rest of Genesis, it follows Abraham as he struggles to develop this nation. Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has Joseph. We did a whole series uh, this summer on Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt and eventually rises the ranks And when a great famine comes, his 12 brothers move to Egypt and settle there with him. But eventually this nation, this this little Israel grows in numbers. And it actually grows to the point that they actually become a threat to Egypt. Israel that once was an ally to Egypt now becomes a threat. And so they enslave the Israelite people in order to keep them down. And this is when we're introduced to a man named Moses. And Moses is chosen to bring them out of captivity and to establish them as the nation that God had promised. And so after a miraculous delivery out of Egypt, Israel arrives at the foot of Mount Sinai, ready for a wedding. And just like the proposal, they follow the same customs of the day. And so we see, if you flip to Exodus 19, they consent to the marriage. They have a ceremonial washing. They stood under a cloud covering, which is the origin for uh, uh, the same things they practice in a Jewish wedding today, uh, one of which is called the hoopah. And in a Jewish wedding, they put this cloth above the, uh, the, the altar that the two stand under. And this is actually the, 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 the origin for it, the cloud that covered over Mount Sinai, that covered the people as they were getting engaged and they were walking into marriage with their God, they stand under their hoopah. And the time has come. And so God then calls Moses up the mountain to receive the final instructions before the wedding. They sit at the foot and wait for Moses to come down to finish it off. And 25 chapters later, he finally comes. He makes him wait a little bit. But when the groom arrives in Exodus 34... 25 chapters later, we get another memorable scene. And it always includes two elements. In the ancient Near East, the marriage ceremony, this, this memorable scene would always include two different things. You'll see it in your fill-in. Number one, it included the law. The law. In verse 11 of, of Exodus 34, he says uh, specifically, Obey what I command you. Obey what I command you. I'd say it like this. Think of the law as the vows at a ceremony, right? When, you, when, you, when somebody is getting married and you sit in, the vows actually become the staple 
the main point of the whole ceremony. The vows are what everything else, the special music and the scriptures and everything, it's all leading up to the vows. The vows are the central portion of the ceremony time. And it's really, if you think about it, it's a law. Now I'll tell you this, one of my pet peeves, and I don't mean to offend if if this was you, but one of my pet peeves at a wedding is when the, the couple writes their own vows and it's just like a love letter. If you're like, it's like, all right, now the bride and groom are to give their vows. And it's like, dear Sally, when I first met you, I was lost and you breathed life into me. And now as we stand here today, I think of our future and all the lovely things that are to come and I can't wait and it's going to be lovely and you're wonderful and smoochy smoochy and things like that. Like, First off, it's just kind of sappy, which I understand at a wedding. You're allowed a level of sappiness. Like, that's okay. That's not really my issue. My issue is, is that you're doing the vows and you didn't vow anything. You didn't promise anything. You said a lot of nice things and there was a lot of nice things back and forth, but the, the whole crescendo of the ceremony is that you stand in front of each other and you actually make a commitment to one another. That's actually the whole point of this, is that before God and before an audience, before uh, uh, witnesses, that you look each other in the eye and you promise things to each other. You say, I'm going to be faithful to you. You say, I will not leave you. For richer, for poorer, and in sickness and in health, better, for worse, I will be there forever. This I vow, this I promise, this I swear. And from Exodus 19, when they get ready for the wedding, to Exodus 34, those 25 chapters, is God's law, is God's vows to Israel. He makes them wait because Moses has to go up on the mountain to get the vows. It's a lot of vows. Thankfully, our vows are a little shorter now. And then in in Exodus 34, he comes down and the wedding is to begin. And it always starts with law vows. Things that God has asked Israel to commit to him for. And in turn, God says over and over in these passages, I will be faithful. I brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you. These are all the things I will do for you. And now here are the things you will do for me. Are you in or are you out? Do you do or do you don't? Are you saying yes to the dress? But it's a commitment. And the law is important in marriage. In fact, in any relationship, there are laws, there are rules, there are things we commit to one another when we decide to associate with one another in a friendship way, in a, a father-daughter, father-son, mother-son, mother-daughter way, and especially in marriage. The law. But there's a second piece in case uh, I paint a picture of marriage just being <laughs> slavery and, and shackles. Because number two is there's a celebration. This is a good thing. There's joy. After the marriage ceremony, it's a party. It's a reception. Like I said at my brother's wedding this week, and you step back and you see the incredible joy 
as people are dancing, and as people are eating, as people are reminiscing, as people are, are having a, a wonderful time. You see, this is what it's all about. Because there's a celebration involved too. And this is why it's no coincidence in Exodus 34, once they give the vows, God then gives them all the feasts. He says, here's how we're going to party. Here's how we're going to enjoy it. Here's how you're going to remember all of this and remember the ceremony. It's kind of like your anniversary. You mark it. You celebrate it. You remember. Does anyone here watch their uh, wedding uh, video uh, every, uh, every uh, time it's their anniversary or look at pictures or do something just to remember what it's like? I, we don't watch ours because uh, my hair was way too goofy. So I just, I don't want to, I don't want to see it. But we remember. We talked about remembering a few weeks ago. We remember, we celebrate this good, good day. And so God says, here are the feasts. In Exodus 34, here are the feasts. It's time to party and celebrate. And in every way, we are to see that this wedding ceremony, at this wedding ceremony, God and Israel get married. God and Israel get, God and Israel get engaged. And now here, God and Israel get married. Which makes the next scene of their story so difficult. And it's a memorable scene for all the wrong reasons. You see, Moses then leads his people all the way to the edge of the promised land. Joshua takes over and judges are appointed to rule. And judges were not kings. They were, not, they were leaders who judged the people's actions against God's law. Because God was the king. But as the book of Judges goes on, things get worse. The people begin rejecting God's law. As you start to flip through Judges, you'll begin to see this. They reject God's law and therefore begin to reject God as their husband and king. They begin sneaking out at nights. God says, you're running after other gods. You're running, where, where did you go last night? And begin rejecting God's law. Until at the end of Judges, it reads this. And it's supposed to leave us feeling, oh man, what did, they, what did they do? The very last verse of Judges says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone just did as they saw fit. And eventually things get so bad that then Israel formally asks the last judge of Israel, Samuel, for a new king. And in 1 Samuel 8, a few uh, more books to your right, we read this. Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, appoint a king to lead us like all the other nations have. And a little later, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And, as they, and they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and running after, serving other gods. By asking for a new king, they are rejecting their spouse. They're forsaking their vows and they're cheating on him with other gods. And so God consents. Because he'll never force us to be in a relationship with him. And in fact, Ezekiel gives us a vision for the day God moves out of the house that he and Israel built together. In Ezekiel 10, it says this, Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold, 
the entrance, or in this case, the exit of the temple. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate above the temple of the Lord's house. And then they were gone. God departs from the house he built with Israel and pauses at the, uh, for a second at the door, almost as if to look back one more time and then he's gone and Israel is left alone and then in, ex- and then in exile. God and Israel get separated. God and Israel get engaged. And God and Israel get married. But then God and Israel get separated. And God moves out. And this separation leads us to this story today. Because God doesn't give up on us. And the whole book of Nehemiah is Israel and God's reconciliation. Israel is coming back. They're returning. And here in chapter 8, we find Israel's final memorable scene because God and Israel get remarried. They get remarried. And this is the scene. And just like the marriage ceremony in Exodus, just like the marriage ceremony in any ancient Near Eastern culture, it always involved two things. The same two things as a staple for any marriage. First, the law. They renew their vows. They renew their vows. They pull out the law vows Moses gave them and they raid them again. For some of them, it seems for the first time. And you can tell they really mean it. They get the significance. They feel the weight of the commitment. They weep They stand, and this is one of the things, reasons we stand. They stand, they feel the significance of God's word. And they listen for hours on end. And then in verse 6, they raise their arms and respond with shouts of amen, amen. And amen literally means so be it. Do you take this God to be your lawfully wedded husband? Amen. I do. And then they party. They celebrate. The reception begins. Nehemiah tells them, This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve or weep, because they've been weeping, because they felt such the significance of the law. He said, Stop weeping. It's time to party. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. This isn't a day to mourn. This is a day to celebrate. Take a stand back. See the laughter. See the great food, the great company, everyone in their finest clothes. Because it's time for a celebration. They discover that one of the festivals that God commanded that for them in Exodus 34 is at that time, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And this occurs at the harvest, when the harvest is completed, and so it includes this well-deserved rest. Kind of the theme of this, uh, one of the themes of this festival is it's time to rest and be thankful for what God has done. So they say, let's do it. They read the law, and it's time to celebrate. And as this feast developed over time after this, customs, new customs were adopted to help remember this day of remarriage. And one of them was a ritual of water. If you notice in the text, the law was read at the water gate. It actually mentions it in our text three times, which again, should clue you in. If they keep saying the same thing, which seems like a seemingly indifferent uh, detail, three different times, we take notice. It was read at the water gate, and they said, okay, so if we're going to remember when we stood and listened to the law and heard the law, it's got to involve water. Because this gate was the gate that brought the fresh water into the city. So as time went on, they began to connect this concept of water with the concept of the law. Because they knew just as much as they depended on water to live, so too they needed the law to be sustained. And they looked at passages of scripture. Places like Psalm 1 where it said, Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. And so they said, if we're going to remember this, and we're going to do it at this festival, it's got to involve water. And so they did. Year after year, at this time forward, the priest would go up to the temple with a giant golden container, poured out its kind, and and, and filled it with the water that came from the water gate. And then they would go to the altar once every day and pour it on the altar as everyone celebrated. as a way, a symbolic way, a gesture of showing that we depend on the law. We remember the day we celebrated our remarriage. And the priest did this seven times. And then on the eighth day, which was the greatest day of the feast, the priest would take a giant cauldron and walk around the altar seven times instead of one, kind of uh, fanning the flames of people began to celebrate and shout and sing and praise God, and then they would pour the entire contents of the water onto the altar to say, from this day forward, God, may we remember your law. May we meditate on it day and night so that we might be, stream- we, we may be planted by streams of water and remember the covenant we made to you. Back in Nehemiah 8, streams of living water. You see, every marriage has a relationship. Every every marriage, every relationship, every commitment has a law and a celebration. A law and a party. The question for today is, which one do you need to remember? like to invite the band up as we close. Where do you need the law? Some of us need to be reminded of our vows. We take God too flippantly, and we bank on his grace and overlook his law. Now, we will mess up. We have a responsibility to uphold our end of the vow. But we also know we're going to mess this up. And God knows we're going to mess this up.
But on the day that he proposed, God knew what was happening. And so he took it for us. Because in Genesis 15, the day of the proposal, the day of engagement, when it was time for Abraham to walk through that blood path, he knew he'd never be able to uphold his end of the bargain. So like we talked about in our series before, we see in Genesis 15, read it again, God passes through the pieces instead. And says, if you mess up, when you mess up, it'll be my blood instead. And 2,000 years ago on a cross, he did. So you have a reason, you have a responsibility to uphold your end of the vows. But when you mess up and when you fall short, your bridegroom has promised that he'll pass through the pieces instead. But not before he goes to a festival. And on the same one we read, we read in John, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the day of the festival. In fact, it says on the eighth day, the greatest day, the day with the biggest fervor. It says in John, on the last and greatest day of the festival, as the priests circled the altar with the water, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So as we keep our vows to our bridegroom, rivers of living water flow from us to a world that is in desperate need of a good bridegroom. We keep the law. We love the law. We keep our vows and as people watch our life, streams of living water flow from us to the world. Some of us need a dose of the law. But some of us just need a dose of the celebration. Where do you need to laugh? Where do you need to sing? Where do you need to dance? Where do you need to rest? Where do you need to take a step back and look at life and say, this is what heaven's going to be like someday? Where are you tired and worn out and heavy laden? Where is there condemnation or second guessing or thoughts of insignificance? It's time to party. Then Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Will you marry me? And the bridegroom is coming. And he will make things new. And he will make it the most memorable scene in history when he comes. Because I heard what sounded like the great multitude in Revelation 19. Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice 
and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready. Fine linen and bright and clean clothes were given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we recognize the memorable scenes in our life. Those points that pushed our story forward. And Lord, as we read in Scripture, those memorable scenes that pointed you and Israel forward, that bounded you together, that tore you apart and then brought you back, God, may we live with that freedom too. May we live knowing, God, that we've made vows to you, that we live under your law, and that your law is good, and we do so willingly, Lord, but we recognize, God, that we have a part to play. But thank you, God, for when we fall short, that you walk between the pieces instead. Thank you, God, that we get to party, that you promised that you would give us life and life to the full, and that one day you will come back and the reception will begin. And we'll get to eat and drink and dance, reminisce, meet old friends we haven't seen, and family we haven't seen in a long time. Enjoy you forever. So, Lord, in this life, may we take a step back and look at our scenes and get a taste of what heaven will be like. And maybe it for your glory and honor. We love you, Jesus. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, and worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Let's all stand. You're rich in love and 
you're slow to anger your name is great and your heart is kind for all your goodness i will keep on singing ten thousand reasons for my heart to Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, and worship His holy. 